This is episode 270 of That Shakespeare Life. Just like the work of William Shakespeare, That Shakespeare Life is supported by our patrons. Listeners just like you help support our show, contribute directly to programming, and get access to a library of over 150 additional episodes of our show, all when they sign up to be a patron at patreon.com slash that Shakespeare Life. That's patreon.com slash that Shakespeare Life. Hello, I'm Cecilia Wells. I'm honorary president of the Shakespeare Birthplace Trust. Another great method to studying the life of William Shakespeare includes listening to this. It's That Shakespeare Life with my friend Cassidy Cash. Now, the folio is known as a folio in sixes. That's the term we give to it. And this is because... It's made up of bundles of six large sheets of paper folded in half, and these provide a total of 12 sides of printed matter. Welcome to That Shakespeare Life with Cassidy Cash. Cassidy believes that if you desire to successfully learn or perform Shakespeare's plays, then understanding the real life and history of William Shakespeare himself is a must. That Shakespeare Life is the podcast that helps you go beyond the curtain of some of Shakespeare's most iconic works and explore the world of early modern England as Shakespeare would have lived it, learning from the writers, historians, and performers who know it best. And now, here's Cassidy. During his lifetime, only about half of Shakespeare's plays were available in printed versions. That meant that there were several of Shakespeare's plays that weren't available in printed form at all while the bard was alive. So how do we know about those plays today if there aren't any written records of them? Well, they survived through the printing of a book called The First Folio. There are at least 18 plays from Shakespeare's collected works that we only have copies of today because the printing of The First Folio preserved them. And if you've heard about the printing of the first folio that happened in 1623, you'll probably recognize the names Hemings and Condal. These are Shakespeare's friends and colleagues. They worked with them in the King's Men Playing Company, and they're often touted out as the authors of the first folio. What the history shows us, however, is that while Hemings and Condal were involved, the making of the first folio was not done by two men, but instead was a collective work done by a large network of individuals that were friends, fans of Shakespeare, as well as businessmen looking to capitalize on an opportunity. Our guest this week, Chris Lautaris, has done in-depth investigative research into this group of people that made the first folio and the history behind what it took to produce this book. He shares this latest research in his book titled Shakespeare's Book that's out now. We're delighted to have Chris here today to discuss his book and to reveal a fresh perspective and some brand new discoveries about the people and the history that gave us the first folio. Hello, Chris. Welcome back to That Shakespeare Life. So glad to have you here again. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me back, Cassidy. I'm so looking forward to our discussion. Our first question actually comes from our listeners here at That Shakespeare Life that are brand new to the history of the first folio. They are wondering, since it's a collection of Shakespeare's works, is it called a folio in the same sense of an artist's portfolio? Or does that word folio mean something else? That's a very good question. First, let's talk a bit about what the folio actually is. And as you mentioned in your introduction, it is the first collected edition of Shakespeare's plays, which was published in 1623. 
And it contains 36 plays in all, which sounds a bit like a portfolio. But folio, as I'll, I'll go into discuss in a moment, actually has a slightly different connotation for us today. This was one of the most important literary conservation projects in history because, as you mentioned in your introduction, it preserved 18 Shakespeare plays, which may have been consigned to oblivion without this astonishing labour of love. And this includes plays like Macbeth, The Tempest, Cymbeline, Twelfth Night and Antony and Cleopatra, to name just a few of the plays preserved within its pages. So hard to imagine a world uh, without Macbeth, for example. And we owe a great deal to the makers of, the Shakespeare, of Shakespeare's first folio uh, for preserving these works. Now, a folio itself is the term we give to a large format volume. So during Shakespeare's lifetime, some of his works were printed in smaller formats known as quartos. These were individual publications in a much smaller format. A folio was, is made by taking a large sheet, a very large sheet, and then folding it in half to give us four sides to print material on. So this is a large format volume. Now, the folio is known as a folio in sixes. That's the term we give to it. This is because it's made up of bundles of six large sheets of paper folded in half, and these provide a total of 12 sides of printed matter. And when these 12 sides are printed on, they're then sewn together to form what we call a choir. And so these choirs are then assembled, and that makes up the whole folio. Now, because this was a large format book, it was quite an opulent and expensive item. And this could be adorned, as the first folio was, with decorative borders and ornamental woodblock decorations. So the whole book had a really luxurious feel. It was a weighty thing, too. You needed a desk to read it and a space in order to be able um, to engage with the text, because it was quite a hefty tome. And it was a very expensive commodity at the time. It cost 15 shillings to purchase, which is around £120 today in, in British pounds sterling. So this really was for deep-pocketed individuals. It, it, it was certainly a luxurious item. And during this period, books tended to be sold without binding. So if you wanted a bound cover, you would have to pay a further one to five shillings, depended, depending on the quality of binding you wanted. And so this was, by all accounts, a very expensive book. In fact, at the time of its printing, it was the most expensive book of plays in history up until that point. So how hard was it for the men who created the first folio to put that together? Were there any specific obstacles they had to overcome in order to produce this? There were indeed. Uh, one of the first obstacles which had to be navigated was the ownership of rights to plays that were needed to complete the venture. Just to explain how this worked, during Shakespeare's own lifetime, he did not own the rights to his own plays. These were a collective asset. They were owned by the playing company to which Shakespeare belonged, known first as the Chamberlain's Men and then as the King's Men. Over the years, particularly during the first half of Shakespeare's career, the company sold on the rights to plays to publishers and stationers, giving them the right to print them. So just as an example, by 1600, Shakespeare is a hugely vendable commodity. 
And according to one estimation, his works account for an astonishing 4% of the whole publishing market, which is really is a colossal amount. So he was very popular in print for a while. Now, this happened during the first half of Shakespeare's career. And so about half of Shakespeare's works were sold on by the playing company to publishers, giving them the right to print those works. But what this meant was the playing company itself no longer held on to those rights. So before the first folio could be printed, the ownership of up to 22 plays, previously licensed or belonging by inheritance to up to 12 booksellers or rights holders, had to be determined. Now, the King's Men themselves held on to the rights to 14 plays outright, so that was easy. They could just transfer the rights to those 14 plays that the King's Men kept in their possession to a syndicate of financiers and publishers of the first folio. And just to explain who these financiers were, the first folio was supported, financed, backed by four bookselling businesses. These included the father and son printing team, William and Isaac Jaggard, in whose printing house in London's Barbican, the first folio was printed. Also included Edward Blunt, who was another senior financier of the first folio. And then there were two junior financiers. These were John Smethick and William Aspley. And this syndicate of bookseller publishers actually owned the rights to eight plays between them. But then this still left 14 plays over which the syndicate had to negotiate with eight individual rights holders. So this was no easy task. They had to track down these rights holders. They had to negotiate with them to get the rights to print those plays in the first folio. And this must have been quite a difficult task because Shakespeare's plays start being sold off in about the mid-1590s. So we're dealing here with nearly three decades since Shakespeare's plays begin to be sold off to other rights holders. So the syndicate to track down members of the publishing industry who own the rights to those plays. There were other obstacles too. The major one was expense. Printing the first folio was a pricey endeavour. This would have needed some really canny business nows to bring to fruition. One calculation of the cost of producing each folio is six shillings, eight pence. Now, with an estimated print run of roughly 750 copies, that would have meant a total outlay of £250. Now, that's well over £33,000 sterling today, which is a huge amount. Now, we can put this into perspective when we recall that many artisanal professions like goldsmithing or shoemaking brought in an annual salary of just four to five pounds. So £250 was a huge sum of money. And before even thinking about, you know, beginning the printing, the uh, syndicate had to pay for paper stocks. That was one of the biggest expenses they had. Paper was expensive at this time. The paper they used for the first folio was actually imported from France. So this was an additional cost. And according to one calculation, across its whole print run, the first folio needed 180,000 sheets of this paper with a cost of over £81, which is more than £11,000 today. So you can see why it was that it was decided that a syndicate of bookseller publishers was needed to help portion out the uh, burden of the cost of the folio and also just help manage the tracking down of rights holders. So 
this syndicate really helped to ensure that this project did go ahead and was a success. I think that helps explain why it took so long to print. Because I think a lot of people look at, well, Shakespeare died in 1616 and the folio wasn't printed until 1623. Why did they wait? You know, that's almost a decade. Why did they wait that long? And I think when we see what all it took to really put this together, that time period makes much more sense. And it speaks, I think, to Shakespeare's popularity that they would feel like this level of investment, which as you're pointing out, is is over two years salary in you know a similar career or industry that that's a significant amount of money and obviously they felt like it was worth it and there was a group of men who felt like this was worth that outlay so i think that's pretty impressive all around absolutely yes and also just to say it wasn't i mean traditionally we think we think that the first folio was put together just by um, Shakespeare's fellow uh, actors and friends and colleagues in the Kingsmen, John Hemmings and Henry Condell. So Hemmings and Condell are normally described as the folios editors who put the folio together. In actual fact, as you mentioned, it needed a team of people to create the first folio, including these these financial backers. And there were so many other invisible hands involved in creating it, with uh, all of whom I kind of address in my book, uh, Shakespeare's book. So it really did take a huge number of people to bring the first folio to fruition. A really nice example of a 17th century crowdsourcing campaign. (laughs) It's a really good way to describe it, yes. Was it traditional to publish plays in a collected format to memorialize the artist after their death? Or was this project a special tribute for Shakespeare that had been done by his friends? It was, in fact, a pretty new undertaking in folio format. Yes, it's true. This There was the element of memorialization about it, but also this was a business. Nobody really publishes books without the hope of making some kind of return on their investment, especially with such such a pricey endeavor as this. But the first folio was an innovation in some respects. In 1616, the collected works of Ben Jonson, Shakespeare's friend and rival, was published. This had been con- a controversial endeavor. On two counts, firstly, because it included commercial plays, and secondly, because these were labelled works. And and I'll just explain why that's controversial. During this period, playwriting was not considered an elevated occupation. It did not have the prestige it does today. In fact, the then keeper of what became the Bodleian Library in Oxford refused to store playbooks, referring to them as, quote, baggage books, which would bring disgrace to the library. Ben Jonson broke with tradition in including commercial plays among his other works in his own folio. Folios were, in fact, reserved for elevated works of literature, for weighty genealogical or historiographical tomes, for texts of religious importance, or even works by monarchs. James I himself, for example, issued his own works in folio format. But to make matters worse, Johnson referred to his own commercial plays explicitly under the label works, since works was a term used only for significant publications. Again, these would be historiographical, religious, or other kinds of works by learned figures. So plays were definitely not under the banner of works at this time. And for Ben Johnson, you know, he had 
scorn heaped upon him by critics for his temerity in calling his commercial plays works. Uh, one anonymous satirist wrote, and I love this quote, he, he wrote, Pray tell me, Ben, where doth the mystery lurk? What others call a play, you call a work. <laughs> so you can see how controversial it was at the time to refer to commercial plays as works. But the Shakespeare first folio went one step further in only including commercial plays. And these were referred to more than once within the book as works. And if that wasn't bad enough, they were published in a folio format, which was normally reserved for much more elevated works of literature. So from the get-go, the first folio was a somewhat bold, gutsy and daring endeavour. And it made the first folio, in many ways, a unique proposition. The very first folio-sized book made up entirely of commercial plays. So this really was a book that broke the mold. Chris's book writes about a turbulent political scene going on as the folio was compiled. Chris, how does the political upheaval in London relate to the story of the folio? It relates to it in a number of integral ways. The hot-button issue of the period was the so-called Spanish match. This was what everyone was talking about at the time. This was James I's scheme to marry his son, Prince Charles, to a Spanish princess, the Infanta Maria, sister to King Philip IV of Spain. This shaped the volume in decisive ways, since practically everyone involved in it was, in some way, pushing James I's foreign policy. And just some examples of this, two of the commemorative poets who contributed to the volume were James Mab and Leonard Diggs. So in the front matter to the first folio, Diggs and Mab contribute poems in memory of Shakespeare. And in doing so, they, they were part of a group of poets in the first folio who shaped Shakespeare's posthumous identity. Now, these two poets both translated works from Spanish into English, which were published by none other than Edward Blunt, the first folio's, one of the first folio's senior uh, financial backers. Blunt was, like Mabs and Diggs, something of a Hispanophile and was, like them, engaged in the business of promoting Spanish literature and culture in England. In fact, he brought to an English readership works from the golden age of Spanish literature, especially Cervantes's Don Quixote. He and another investor in the first folio project, William Aspley, even co-funded the publication of a Spanish dictionary. So you've got here a group of uh, scholar poets and publishers who are really interested in promoting Spanish literature in England. In addition, Ben Jonson, who also wrote two poems commemorating Shakespeare in the first folio, devised court entertainments which trumpeted the virtues of the match, becoming one of the crown's principal propagandists for the Anglo-Spanish Union. And even the king's men got in on the act, quite literally, by performing a series of Spanish-themed plays during the printing of the first folio. Also noteworthy, in fact, and of great interest, is the fact that the engraver of Shakespeare's iconic portrait in the first folio, his name was Martin Droshout, was himself a Hispanophile who emigrated to Spain not long after producing the portrait. This probably meant he was Catholic. And Ben Jonson himself had been Catholic, as had been another memorialiser of Shakespeare in the first folio, Hugh Holland. Hugh Holland also 
wrote a poem in memory of Shakespeare in the folio, and he was Catholic too. So what the first folio did was preserve within its pages a kind of propagandist support for James I's grand vision of an Anglo-Spanish alliance. Shakespeare's works, therefore, were not printed in isolation from the political pressures of the age, but in fact reflected the political controversies of the time, and, and that left its trace within Shakespeare's book, which I think is really fascinating because it's a book that isn't static, but is responsive to those political pressures in the period. One particular fun thing I found in Chris's book is that he talks about a lost Shakespeare sonnet. Chris, what is this sonnet? Why was it lost? And did your research find it again? <laughs> yes, this is a bit controversial, I guess. It did get a huge amount of publicity when the findings were released. So what happened was I was researching a printed play by Ben Jonson called Sejanus's Fall. The play was written in 1603, but published in 1605. And I was interested in that play because it brought together some personalities attached to the first folio. So it's a Ben Jonson play. We know Ben Jonson commemorating Shakespeare in the folio. It was originally, the rights to that play were originally held by Edward Blunt, who was the one of the principal financiers of the first folio. And the front matter to the published edition of the play included a poem by Hugh Holland, who also wrote a poem in memory of Shakespeare in the folio. So that interested me because we've got a group of people here who were also attached to the first folio. But while I was looking over this play in, in its printed form, I my eye fell on something kind of that intrigued me. So beneath the Hugh Holland sonnet in praise of Ben Jonson, there's another sonnet, but this is only marked, it's only signed with a pseudonym, Cygnus. And that intrigued me because... Cygnus in mythology was transformed into a swan, then turned into the constellation Cygnus. And in the first folio, in his poem in memory of Shakespeare, Ben Jonson refers to Shakespeare as the sweet swan of Avon. And as I read this sonnet, it kind of reminded me a bit of Shakespeare's style. There were lots of Shakespeare-isms in it. So I started to, started to wonder, is it is it conceivable, is it possible that the Cygnus sonnet is actually by Shakespeare? Now, the reasons against this are, so, you know, the primary reason, I guess, why this hasn't really got much attention before is because Ben Jonson did refer to Hugh Holland previously as the swan as well. So it had been thought that this was just another poem by Hugh Holland, but signed with the pseudonym Cygnus. But the more I looked at those two sonnets side by side, the more different the style appeared. And so I started a thorough search looking for other scholars or academics who perhaps had maybe had the same hunch. And when I turned up a blank, I wrote to Dr. Martin Wiggins, a former colleague of mine at the Shakespeare Institute. Basically, kind of, I, I emailed him, you know, hey, Martin, um, <laughs> You know, do you do you know of anyone who has ever thought the Cygnus sonnet might be by Shakespeare? And he replied, "Yes, uh, me," <laughs> meaning that he had himself had this kind of thought that perhaps there was a small chance that this sonnet could be by Shakespeare. So he drew my attention to a single line in his multi-volume compendium, a catalogue of British drama, in which he had written, "Quote Cygnus, perhaps a pseudonym for Hugh Holland, or perhaps the Swan of Avon." 
So I thought, well, you know, if, if, if a scholar of the stature of Dr. Martin Wiggins had thought independently that there's at least a chance that this sonnet might be by Shakespeare, then it's worth exploring further. So I did a deep dive into Shakespeare's sonnets and compared them with this mysterious Cygnus sonnet. And so the results of that are in the book. There's a whole chapter in Shakespeare's book devoted to the Cygnus sonnet. And in that, I include uh, a facsimile of both sonnets, the Hugh Holland sonnet and the Cygnus sonnet. And so readers can make up their minds as to whether or not they think this really is genuinely a lost Shakespeare sonnet. I think it's very tantalising. And if it is a Shakespeare sonnet, what it does show is that Shakespeare, who had actually acted in Sejanus, this was one of the plays that Shakespeare performed in, Shakespeare would have known Hugh Holland before the first folio was published, because currently we have no other evidence that Shakespeare knew Hugh Holland, who commemorated him in the folio. So this, if this is a uh, Shakespeare sonnet, then it would suggest there was some prior relationship between them. So it's a tantalizing prospect. Exciting research. Definitely read the chapter on the Cygnus sonnet from Chris's book, and we'll link in the show notes to that so you can get your copy. But one of the other revelations from your book, Chris, is about Shakespeare's London lodger. Chris, for the uninitiated, please tell us who this person is and what new discovery have you found related to the lodger? And how were you able to discover this information while researching the folios specifically? This was a really unexpected and kind of accidental find, really. It was while I was going through the loan books of the Stationers Company, which is the company responsible for regulating the printing and publishing trades in England, that I came across a loan to one John Robinson. And when I saw this, it kind of startled me. I kind of did a double take and I thought, oh, there's a name I know. Uh, Because John Robinson, in fact, we know, was the name of an individual who was Shakespeare's lodger. So in 1613, Shakespeare purchases a property called the Blackfriars Gatehouse, which is very close to the Blackfriars Theatre, literally just paces away. And in that property, he places a lodger named John Robinson. And incidentally, a John Robinson signed as a witness to Shakespeare's will. Now, we don't know if the John Robinson, who was Shakespeare's lodger, and the John Robinson who signed his Shakespeare's will, we don't know if they are the same individual. But it's very interesting because we don't really know who Shakespeare's lodger was. There have been various theories. One theory is that he was, in fact, the steward of a Catholic nobleman in the area. But there's no solid proof that this is the case. Now, there has been a long-standing theory that Shakespeare buys the Blackfriars Gatehouse because he wants to be close to the company's papers which may have been stored in the Blackfriars Theatre, with a view to actually assembling his own first folio during his lifetime. So this is, this is a theory that has been suggested in academic circles. Now, what would lend more credence to that theory is if we could find out the identity of this John Robinson, and if John Robinson was somehow associated with the publishing industry, or may have been some kind of scribe or scrivener who may have been able to help out with a project like that. So I found this record of a John Robinson in the stationers' archives, the stationers being basically the group of, you know, the guild that that, that is responsible for publishing in the country, made up of publishers and printers. So after doing a bit of digging, I discovered 
that this John Robinson I'd found was indeed a publisher. And what's really interesting is that he graduated from his apprenticeship in 1613, which is the very year Shakespeare purchases the Blackfriars property. In this period, if you were apprenticed, your master had to provide you with lodging. Once you'd graduated, you had to find your own place to live and set up a business as a professional in your field. So this John Robinson, stationer, publisher, would have been looking for a place to live at exactly the time Shakespeare bought the Blackfriars Gatehouse property. And where did he put down professional roots? In fact, as I discovered, only minutes away from the gatehouse in a shop called the Fleur de Lucen Crown. And what's more, he appears to have had several close connections with printers and other figures associated with Shakespeare publishing. So when John Robinson sets up as a, as a professional publisher, the very first book we believe he published was in fact dedicated to a member of the Carey family. Now, the Carey family were very important to Shakespeare because two of his patrons were from that family from 1594 to 1603, since the company to which Shakespeare belonged was first patronised by Henry Carey and thereafter by his son, George Carey. In addition to that, that first book was printed by a Nicholas Oakes. And Oakes graduated under someone very known to Shakespeare, Richard Field. Richard Field was a fellow Stratfordian. He went to the same school as Shakespeare, and he was Shakespeare's first publisher. He published Shakespeare's Venus and Adonis, and he also published a couple of other Shakespeare narrative poems. But Venus and Adonis in 1593 was the first Shakespeare work published. And so this is really interesting. And Nicholas Oakes was somewhat of a Shakespeare enthusiast. He published several works attached to Shakespeare as well as a spin-off of uh, Venus and Adonis. And so I trace all of these connections in Shakespeare's book. Now, we can't be 100% sure that this John Robinson I discovered was Shakespeare's lodger, but it's a tantalising prospect. It's the, the closest we will get to sensing Shakespeare's own hand on his own book, on his first folio. And that makes it a quite lovely discovery because what it does mean is we have a new candidate for Shakespeare's lodger. Now, in addition to being this sort of splash in the publishing industry for when it was actually published, the first folio has had something of a complex history after it was published. Can you tell us about some of the adventures of the folio or notable copies of the book and its travels after it was published? Certainly. The various surviving copies of the folio each conceal fascinating stories you know, they might, for example, tell us something about early female literacy and reading practices. The first first folio known to be owned by a woman is Folger Shakespeare Library Folio 23. So the, the Folger Library owns 82 first folios and number 23 is, we believe, the earliest folio we can trace owned by a woman. It has a provenance stretching back to around 1640. And it was owned by a woman named Mary Child. And what I love is she proudly inscribed in it the words, Mary Child is the true possessor of this book. Now, that was a bold statement at a time of limited literacy for women. And this book was appeared to have been handed down between women. It was then successively owned by two further female owners. Um, and so the history of the folios do tell us something about female reading practices, which is lovely. 
Other notable histories to do with the folio relate to England's relation to other countries. The first folio in Padua in Italy, which I have personally inspected, and you know what an honour it was to be able to do that, probably arrived in Italy as part of England's trading and diplomatic relations. It's possible that it was brought there by a Venetian consul. So it has this really interesting place in, in the history of being one of the early first folios that begin that journey out into the world, turning first folio into a global book. And interestingly, that folio has the distinction of being the only first folio residing, if you like, uh, housed in a non-English city, which is a setting for a Shakespeare play, as Padua is the setting for The Taming of the Shrew. But it's in the 19th century when the first folio starts to take on a somewhat darker history. There are folios in Sydney, in Australia, Auckland in New Zealand, and Cape Town in South Africa. The folios in the latter two locations arrived there in the second half of the 19th century and were once owned by Sir George Grey, an energetic coloniser who had served as governor of South Australia, New Zealand, and Cape Colony in South Africa, what is now known as Cape Town. And he supported the establishing of a library in Cape Colony in 1858. And he also created the Free Public Library in Auckland in 1880 in New Zealand, with generous bequests of books to both fledgling institutions, including eventually a first folio for each. Now, this is where apparent acts of philanthropy, such as creating libraries, conceal a somewhat more insidious motive. For Gray, the first folio represented the pinnacle of culture, but specifically of English culture. He sought nothing less than the obliteration of the language and culture of the native populations in Australia, New Zealand and South Africa. He wanted to replace these with the English language and a universal appreciation of English literature. He referred to these indigenous peoples as savages, these are his own words, and called them, quote, people not civilised but still barbarous. And so there were these kind of darker histories attached to the folio. Other folios were owned by figures associated with the colonial enterprise in Tasmania, as well as in India. So essentially, where there were colonizers, Shakespeare's words and his folio were never far away. This is, as I said, a slightly darker history, uh, a more troubling past attached to the first folio, but it's important to acknowledge, you know, yes, We approach the folio with some reverence as an important and influential book, but we must also be aware that its circulation has not been to the benefit of all people in all places at all times. And of course, more recently, we've opened up these histories. We're becoming more aware of them. And so the first folio in today's world, in today's educational world, through museums, through universities, through schools, and through podcasts like yours, is a kind of teaching aid. It helps us understand the complexities of our past and the way Shakespeare was sometimes bound in uh, with those complexities. So it's important to know about the kind of less favourable aspects of that history too. 
Obviously, there is a ton of history to explore here related to the first folio. And while we do recommend you start with Chris's latest book titled Shakespeare's Book that we will link to in the show notes for today's episode as the starting point to explore the history of the world of the first folio. Chris, we would love to hear from you what resources you can recommend for us in addition to your book, perhaps things that you've encountered in your research or just some of your favorites that you think we should use to learn more. Yes, I've got four recommendations for you. If you want to know more about the syndicate who put the first folio together, particularly about the broader publishing cultures around them, I highly recommend a book by Ben Higgins entitled Shakespeare's Syndicate, The First Folio, Its Publishers and the Early Modern Book Trade. This is published by Oxford University Press in 2022. Also by Oxford University Press, for those who want more information about the afterlife of the first folio, is an excellent book by Emma Smith entitled Shakespeare's First Folio, 400 Years of an Iconic Book. This was originally published in 2016 and has just been revamped this year. So there's a, there's a new edition for 2023. Now, we shouldn't forget that this year is also another important anniversary. It is, in fact, the anniversary of Shakespeare's wife. And Shakespeare. She died in August 1623. So this is the 400th anniversary of her death. And she died just months before the first folio was published. So the folio was published in November and died on the 6th of August of 1623. And there's a wonderful book about her by Catherine Shile entitled Imagining Shakespeare's Wife, The Afterlife of Anne Hathaway. And that's by Cambridge University Press. And lastly, I recommend, if you want a kind of poetical take on Anne Shakespeare, the first ever anthology of poems in honour of Anne Shakespeare was published this year. And I'm honoured to say I co-edited this with Paul Edmondson, Aaron Kent and Catherine Shile. And it's entitled Anthology, Poems Representing Anne Shakespeare. And it's published by Broken Sleep Books. So if you go to the Broken Sleep Books website, You'll find the book there. It's called Anthology with Anne being her name, A-N-N-E dash Anthology. And all the proceeds from this book go towards supporting the Shakespeare Birthplace Trust's education initiatives. Shakespeare Birthplace Trust is a registered charity. So this will help children's education initiatives with them. And it's wonderful that Anne gets her own book at long last. So I'm very proud to be part of that project. That's fantastic. We will link to all of these resources in the show notes for today's episode. So make sure you hang on to the end for the URL for where to find all of those. Now, Chris, as you know, from your last visit here with us, we ask everyone this next question here at That Shakespeare Life. And that's what's the one book you would take with you on a deserted island? My friends in England tell me I'm supposed to allow you the complete works of Shakespeare and a copy of the Bible. So your choice would be in addition to those. And you may choose something other than what you chose last time. Yes. So last time I, I chose the Fairy Queen, if memory serves. I chose the Fairy Queen because it's this huge epic encyclopedic poem by Edmund Spencer and all of Renaissance life is in it. So it, next to Shakespeare, it's, it's the other work that sort of captures the ethos and essence of what it was like to live in Shakespeare's times. So I guess now I should choose something else. And I think I'm going to cheat slightly <laughs> in that what I would take with me if I could isn't a single book. It's actually the collected papers of an individual. It's the papers of Sir Robert Cecil, who was Secretary of State under Elizabeth I and James I. He was one of the most powerful men in England. So if I could, 
take anything with me, I would probably smuggle out all the manuscripts attached to his name because he's such a fascinating figure and was such a powerful individual, but he's also really enigmatic and I want to know more about him. So that's probably what I would do. I would ensconce myself on an island with all of his papers and just do a deep dive into them. Well, nothing like a deserted island for the appropriate time to ensconce yourself in deep, deep dives of literature, for sure. I think that's an excellent choice. So what's next for you? What are you working on now that you're excited about? Well, in actual fact, it is a book about Robert Cecil, (laughs) which won't (laughs) be a surprise. So that is what I'm working on next. What intrigues me about Robert Cecil is the fact that he had to overcome so many obstacles to achieve this kind of prominent position as the preeminent kind of political figure in the country. He had, you know, some quite severe disabilities that he had to overcome, which makes his story even more inspirational. And, you know, for a while, he almost single-handedly ran the country's intelligence networks, employing a vast team of spies and foiling several assassination plots on Elizabeth I and James I, including the infamous gunpowder plot. So he was a fascinating and complex man. So I'm working on a biography of his uh, life and exploits. Uh, This will be published by William Collins Books in the UK and elsewhere, and by Pegasus Books uh, in the US and Canada. So I'm really enjoying kind of learning more about him and discovering what makes him tick, because he's certainly a fascinating individual at the heart of practically everything uh, during two royal reigns, because he was such an important and influential political figure. Hopefully you won't have to find a deserted island to find the space for your study, though I think it's a great excuse to skip off to one if you needed a vacation. <laughs> yeah, I, I should never put in a funding bid for that. Right, <laughs> I don't think I, the wheels are turning about how we can fit that in. <laughs> I know we've really enjoyed reading your work into the folio and we'll find just as much joy seeing your book on Cecil later as well. Thank you so much, Chris Lautaris, for being here this week and taking us through the history of the first folio and sharing with us some of the new and exciting things there are still to find about Shakespeare's history and this fascinating book. It's been a joy talking with you. Thank you so much for having me. I thoroughly enjoyed it as always. Thank you very much indeed. And thanks to your listeners for following us. If you liked today's episode, be sure to let us know about it. Please drop us a rating and a comment on the platform you're listening from today. More ratings and comments help more listeners find our show. And as you know, we love connecting with other Shakespeareans. If you would like to see more in-depth history about the first folio, including visual elements that are related to the conversation we talked about today, like portraits of the people that were financiers, as well as archival images of the locations and the printings of the folio that we talked about today, we have packed extra history, including this visual content and direct links to the resources that Chris is sharing with you today, all in the show notes for this episode. You can find all of these things at CassidyCash.com slash episode 270. That's CassidyCash.com slash EP270. If you love listening to our show here each week and you would like to dive into even more interviews about what it was like to live in turn of the 17th century England the way Shakespeare would have lived it, then consider becoming a patron of That Shakespeare Life. Our patrons library has over 150 additional interviews of our show. And in addition to this entire back catalog, patrons get special VIP treatment, including behind the scenes extras, sneak peeks at upcoming guests, and the chance to submit your own questions to be asked during an interview. Plus, 
there's hands-on activities, classroom resources, and worksheets that coordinate with both our show and with Shakespeare's plays to make it easy for you to take our podcast right into your classroom. Find all of these things and join us today at patreon.com slash that Shakespeare life. That's patreon.com slash that Shakespeare life. That Shakespeare Life is researched and produced by me, Cassidy Cash. Our audio engineer is Gary Mayholm. That's it for this week. Thank you for listening. I'm Cassidy Cash, and I hope you learn something new about the Bard. I'll see you next time. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to That Shakespeare Life. As always, the best conversations happen after the episode over at CassidyCash.com. Become a part of a vibrant Shakespeare conversation by adding your voice over at the website. Until next time, remember, when you want to know William Shakespeare, you have to go behind the curtain and into That Shakespeare Life.